Hello and welcome to Catechesis, a teaching series aimed to instruct in foundational Christian doctrine and to encourage piety amongst the people of God. For those who don't know me, my name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor at Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church in Hemet, California, and thank you for joining me today. In this lesson, we will be considering question 7 of the Baptist Catechism, which asks, What is God? In fact, we will spend two lessons on this question, for the answer is very rich and of great importance. What is God? I ask you, is there a question higher than this one? Is there a question of greater importance? Is it possible for man to contemplate anything greater or more significant than God by asking what or who is he? As Christians, we speak often of Jesus. And it is right that we speak often of him, for he is our Lord and Savior. Our faith is in Jesus. We love and obey Jesus, for he is our Lord and Savior. But take special notice of this. Jesus is not the most important thing. God is. God, that is to say, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, he is the most important thing. God alone is the object of our worship. Yes, we worship Christ, but only by virtue of his divinity. We pray to God in the name of or through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus himself said that to know God and to be in a right relationship with him is to have eternal life. Listen to the prayer of Jesus in John 17:1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, "Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus' ultimate mission was not to draw people to himself, but to serve as a mediator so that through him sinners might be reconciled to God. Paul wrote to Timothy, saying, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And he wrote to the Corinthian church, saying, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Stated differently, Jesus' mission was to glorify not himself ultimately, but God. John thirteen thirty one says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And in John fourteen thirteen, we find Jesus saying to his disciples, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you love Jesus. I hope that you trust in him, worship, and serve him. I hope that you think often and deeply about his person and work. I hope that you stand in awe of the grace of God that is found in him. I pray that you marvel at the salvation that he has earned. In fact, we will do this together in our study of the Catechism when we come to question 24, which asks, Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The answer The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God become man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. 
But I pray that while your knowledge of and love for Jesus grows, that your knowledge of and love for God would also grow. Remember and do not forget that Jesus lived and died and rose again not to bring you to himself only, but to reconcile, that is, to restore and reunite you to God. So let us fix our minds upon God for a moment. Let us think about God as he has been and will be for all eternity. What is God? This is the question that is before us today. And the answer provided by our catechism is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. As I have said, we will take two lessons to talk about this one question, for there is a lot packed into this short answer. In this episode, we will hone in upon the first eight words, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. First of all, our catechism is right to say that God is a spirit. Our catechism says this because this is what the Bible teaches. In John 4.24, for example, Jesus says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When we say that God is spirit, this means that he does not have a body like you and I have. He is not a physical being, but only spiritual. Our confession agrees with this, but says a little bit more. In chapter 2, we find the title of God and the Holy Trinity. And paragraph 1 says, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. I'm afraid that many assume that God is a physical being. I can think of three reasons why this might be. I'm sure there are more. One, it is common for us humans to assume that God is just like us, only a bigger and better version of us. But this is the essence of idolatry. We should be very careful to refrain from making God in our image. He has made us in his image. This means that we are in some ways like him. But this does not mean that God is just like us, only bigger and better. Two, the scriptures do sometimes describe God, attributing human characteristics to him. For example, Psalm 89.13 speaks of God when it says, You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. So which is it, we might ask? Is God spirit, as John 4.24 says? Or does he have arms and hands, as Psalm 89.13 says? The answer is that God is spirit. But the scriptures sometimes talk about God as if he had arms, hands, feet, and a face in order to reveal truth to we humans though he is not actually made up of those parts. When we speak of God's right arm, we speak of his power, his high right hand, his faithfulness, etc. By the way, if God had a body, then he could not be infinite, that is, omnipresent, as the scriptures clearly say that he is. Three, some might assume that God is a physical being because of those passages which speak of his appearing in glory. Sometimes the presence of God is described as radiant light, thundering, smoke, etc. But these are merely manifestations of the glory of God, and are not to be mistaken with God's essence. God is light, for example, not in the sense that he is made up of light waves or particles. 
but he is said to be light because he is true and pure. We must be very careful, friends, to always maintain a distinction between the Creator and his creation. God is a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions. But sometimes the language of human physicality or human emotion is applied to God, not because he is those things in his essence, but in order to teach us something true about him. God is spirit. I should point out that God did create spiritual beings in the beginning. He created angels to dwell in the heavenly realm, and he created humans to dwell upon the earth. Angels are spiritual beings only. Hebrews 1.14 refers to them as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels have sometimes appeared to men, according to the scriptures, but ordinarily they are invisible. Humans are different in that we are made up of body and soul, or body and spirit. We could understand something about God, therefore, by considering angels and men. We understand how it can be that someone exists, though he does not have a body or a physical makeup of any kind. You have a body, but you also have a soul or spirit. And it is there in the soul that your true personality is found. Angels, too, are living beings with personality, and yet they are spiritual beings without bodies. And God is a spirit. Though angels and men share this in common with God, he is spirit, angels are spirits, and we have a spirit, we must remember that God is infinitely greater than spiritual angels and the spirits of men. God is a most pure spirit, our confession says. He does not have body, parts, or passions. You and I have a body. We are made up of parts. Not only do we have body parts, we also have parts to our soul. We have a mind, will, and affections. But it is not so with God. All that is in God is God. He is a most pure spirit. The next four words in the answer to question seven make it clear that although God is a spirit and we have a spirit, God is infinitely greater than us. God is a spirit, we have learned, and he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, our catechism says. Angels and men are not these things. To the contrary, we are finite, created, and mutable. These three attributes or characteristics of God are called incommunicable attributes. These are attributes of God that are unique to him. He does not communicate or share or transfer or pass along these attributes to the creature in any way. God is infinite. We are not. God is eternal. We are not. And God is unchangeable, and we are not. When we go further in the answer to Baptist Catechism 7 next week, we will consider some of God's communicable attributes— His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These are characteristics that God shares with angels and men. You and I know what it is to have being. We know what it is to have wisdom and power and holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. To one degree or another, we are like God in these things. The difference between him and us is that he possesses these qualities infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. So what about the word infinite? God is a spirit 
infinite in being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What does infinite mean? Well, to be finite is to have limits or boundaries. When we say that God is infinite, we mean that God is without limits or boundaries. You and I are finite. One, we are finite in respect to our being. There is only so much of us to go around. There are limits and boundaries to our energies and our existence. Two, we are finite in respect to place. You and I could only be in one place at a time. There are limits and boundaries to our presence. When the teacher calls roll, you either say present or there is silence in the classroom. Three, we are finite in respect to time and duration. You and I are bound by time. Though our bodies and souls will go on living forever in the resurrection, we had a beginning. You and I have not always existed. Moreover, the existence we now have and the existence we will have to all eternity is not self-existence, but it is dependent upon God's existence. We are finite in regard to time and duration. Four, we are finite in respect to our attributes. People may describe us as wise or patient or loving. We might be called kind, but there are limits and boundaries to our wisdom, patience, love, and kindness. Even if you were the most wise person ever to live, still there would be limits to your wisdom, for you are a creature and not the creator. You are finite and not infinite. But God is infinite. Thomas Boston has been helpful here, and so I will quote him at length throughout this section. One, God is infinite in respect to his being. Boston says, for of his nature, our finite understandings cannot possibly form an adequate conception. This lies hid in rays of such bright and radiant glory as must forever dazzle the eyes of those who attempt to look into it. Two, God is infinite in respect to place. God is everywhere present. In Jeremiah twenty-three twenty-four, we read, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? In Psalm 139, 7, we read, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Three, God is infinite in respect to time and duration. Job 36.26 says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The numbers of his years is unsearchable. Four, God is infinite in respect to his communicable attributes. You might be wise, but God is infinitely wise. His wisdom has no boundaries or limits. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or unfathomable his ways! Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. It is not just that God is so big and great that we would have a hard time measuring his greatness. No, he is unsearchable, inscrutable, unfathomable. In olden times, there were parts of the ocean that were unfathomable because the ocean was in that place too deep and the currents were too strong. The weight wasn't heavy enough and the rope wasn't long enough to fathom or measure. 
God is unfathomable, not because he is too big or deep, but because with God there is no bottom at all. He is infinite, that is to say, without limits or boundaries. So I might ask, are you feeling small yet? I think that is one of the great byproducts of reflecting upon the doctrine of God. Not only does our love and appreciation, our awe for God increase, so too does our humility. God is a spirit, infinite, and then our catechism says eternal. When we say that God is eternal, we mean that he had no beginning and will have no end, but has always been and always will be, just as he is, God Most High. As I have already said, God's eternality is his infinitude applied to time and duration. If we consider God's past, if I may speak in this way, there is no boundary to it. He had no birth date, if you will. And if we consider God's future, there is no boundary there either. There will be no date of death for God. There will be no time in which God becomes something that he is not already. And Psalm 90 verse 2 speaks of God saying, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lastly, we have the word unchangeable. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This, friends, is a very comforting doctrine. It is comforting to know that God is unchangeable. If God were imperfect, if he were weak and ignorant and impure, then we might lament the fact that he is unchanging. But because God is perfect in every way, any change in God would be a downgrade. In other words, for God to change would mean either that he was not perfect in the past but has made some improvements, or that though he was perfect in the past, he is now degenerated somehow. It is common for us to pray that God change us, but this is because we are in need of change given our weakness and our sin. Did you know that God has never learned anything? He has never grown, not an inch. Never has he made improvements. Never has God experienced emotional change. How could he? For he is perfect in every way. His love does not ebb and flow, for he is love, perfectly so. His justice does not come and go. Again, God is love. He is just. He is perfectly these things to all eternity. James 1.17 says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This doctrine of God's unchangeableness or his immutability is clearly stated in the Holy Scriptures. Perhaps the best way to conclude this little teaching on the doctrine of God is to say that he is incomprehensible. This might seem like a strange way to conclude, but I think it is the best way. For all that we just said about God concerning what or who he is, it is important to remember that he is 
incomprehensible. Our finite minds are not able to fully comprehend who God is in his essence. After this episode is over, I would encourage you to stop and think about the fact that God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Try to wrap your brain around it. I'm certain you will not be able to grasp it. The reason is that God is the creator and we are the creature, and we cannot wrap our minds around him. Now, though I have said that God is incomprehensible, meaning that we cannot comprehend him fully, I did not say that we cannot know him truly. What the Bible reveals to us about God is true, and we must confess it, even if it stretches us to our limits and goes beyond our limits. Furthermore, we are able to know God truly through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ has revealed the Father to us truly. This is what John 1.18 speaks to, saying, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is a reference to Jesus the Christ. Let us conclude today with this benediction from 1 Timothy 1.17, which says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.